BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Researchers estimate that as many as half of pregnancies in the United States were not planned, and roughly one in five ends in an abortion. With the U.S. Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade and the end of the federal right to an abortion, many sexual health educators and advocates are calling to enhance reproductive education for people of all ages. Advocates say that learning more about how reproduction actually works can help people take charge of their health. But in many states, sex education in schools is limited and under attack. We'll talk about the state of sex ed in a post-Roe America. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, growing up, my high school's version of sex ed was taught by the football coach. The details and approach were just past abstinence-only sex ed and largely centered on not getting HIV and not getting pregnant. When I was ready to have children, I was kind of shocked to learn the real facts of reproduction, in particular that getting pregnant for many couples is not simple or fast, and many friends of all genders had similar experiences and surprises in store. While some states and schools and countries are doing a better job, other institutions never left or have returned to the abstinence-only approach. Like many other things related to the oppression of women and queer and trans people, some state legislatures have decided against the available evidence to just try to teach young people as little as possible about the options they have available to live safe, healthy, and free lives. So this morning, we're going to talk about what modern sex education should look like, especially in light of the Dobbs decision that overturned women and pregnant people's federal right to an abortion, and which, if you follow the logic of Supreme Court Justice Alito's opinion, could be used to go after bodily autonomy broadly. We're joined first by Shafia Zaloum, author of Sex, Teens, and Everything in Between, the new and necessary conversations today's teenagers need to have about consent, sexual harassment, Healthy Relationships, Love, and More. She's a health educator currently working at the Urban School in San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Shavia, let's talk about the sex ed landscape. What's going on with sex ed, and why is it so inconsistent across states and regions and even individual schools? Well, there are no federal guidelines for sex education, and the quality of the sex education your child might get, if they get it at all, really depends on the state and the district. Um, So... 
you know, depending on where you live and what your district decides and the allocation of resources will really determine what that sex ed looks like and how it's being taught to your kids. Um, you know, and, and in those places where there is no sexuality education, you know, there's sex education that happens in schools. And then we're all educated around sexuality through different sort of cultural um institutions, right? Like our families, our friends, the media. And so a lot of kids these days, you know, porn in many ways has become the default sex education in this country, especially for kids who don't feel like their questions are being answered. Because these days, if we're wondering about something, where do we go? We Google it on the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. And we all know that that can bring, depending on what a kid puts in a lot of different options, um, and not all of them will serve them well in answering their questions. Right. Porn, which probably teaches you everything about sex, except that which is meaningful and important. Uh, Right. I mean, learning about sex by watching porn is like watching The Fast and the Furious to learn how to drive um, from the perspective of a young person, you know, um, who's a minor, for sure. So, I mean, I have the perception that sex ed has been rolled back in some places and and actually more intensely codified in others, like in California. But are, is that the actual landscape or are things kind of more static than they might appear? I think it, it you know, again, it really depends because there isn't sort of there aren't federal guidelines and so it depends on what kind of a school your kid goes to do they are they part of a public school district do they go to an independent school do they go to a parochial school a school you know of faith like there's there's all kinds of um sort of guidelines and mandates and policies that come into play when it comes to sexuality education and you know at first glance when you look at the Guttmacher Institute um, and and its report on sexuality education and where it's happening and in what states and what's included in that. You can look that up mm-hmm. on its website. As of June of 2022, you know, 39 states in Washington, D.C. mandate sex ed, HIV education or both. And that's actually more than in the past. Um, and t- but. You know, in addition to that, and it used to be 13 states only um, recommended that it actually be medically accurate, and now that's 18 states. Mm -hmm. So at first glance, it may seem like there is improvement, right, which is always important. However, it's the content of the sexuality education that we really need to look at. Mm -hmm. So you have everything from a very comprehensive approach to abstinence-based Um, sexuality education and a more comprehensive approach that's culturally responsive and inclusive actually um, reduces rates of sexual activity, sexual risk. Um, It really promotes healthy behaviors amongst kids. But what we know through congressional research is that abstinence-only based sexuality education um, can actually be to the detriment of their well-being. So, you know, it really kind of depends on um, how it's then being implemented and what's being taught. Yeah. We're talking with Shafia Zaloum, author of Sex Teens and Everything in Between. She's a health educator currently working at the Urban School as we sort of talk about the sex ed landscape in this post-row world. And we'd love to hear from you. What did you learn in sex ed? And did it actually serve you in your life? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are KQED Forum. And, of course, the email for this question that we're batting around this hour, what should sex ed look like? What did you learn 
in sex ed and did it serve you in your own life? You can email your thoughts on that to forum at kqed.org. So, you know, in my mind, in sex ed, there's kind of been, the, the, the camps seem to have shaken out, at least in the labels for them, as abstinence only and comprehensive sex ed. But, you know, reading your work and listening to you talk, it seems like there's something beyond comprehensive sex ed or what's been termed comprehensive sex ed that you're trying to bring in your efforts as a sex educator. Yes, absolutely. So I think as much sexuality information that's medically accurate um, and age appropriate is going to be something for kids and that that's a start. Um, and what I've learned in my years, I've been teaching this for you know close to 30 years, is that there, it's one thing to know, it's another thing to do, right? And we know that. There is that misconception out there that if we teach kids about sex, they're going to run out and they're going to go do it. And there's no empirical evidence that proves that whatsoever. But on the other hand, it's really important to recognize, because that's true, just because we give kids information about sexuality, yes, absolutely, it helps them make more informed decisions that will serve them and keep themselves and their friends healthy and safe. However, if we want to maximize the potential for them actually using all of that information and applying it effectively to interpersonal dynamics and the complexities of human relationships, we have to go beyond that and do more. Mm -hmm. Um, To include things like healthy relationships, um, you know, sexual violence prevention, body image, sexual orientation, gender identity, all these different ways in which we can help create a more complete picture about what sexuality is, the reality of it um, culturally, and then help kids understand, provide guidance on how to apply the sex information, um, and this is really the education part, to the real lives that they're going to be living. You know, we talked a little bit about the role that pornography plays, just this pornography-saturated world that we now live in, kind of almost unimaginable relative to, you know, the 1970 pre-internet world. But what about the other digital influences that kids have? Like, I'm sure, I'm not sure who they are, but I'm sure they exist, (laughs) that there are like sex ed influencers on TikTok or other platforms that kids are using. Absolutely. Um, And I think that there are all kinds of, you know, Social media, which you've just referenced, um, technology, it's a tool, right? And there are different ways we can use tools, and we hope that people use tools in a way that are productive and are going to contribute to their lives in constructive ways, um, and in this case, to their relationships. And then there are other ways by which those tools can actually be a detriment. Um, And mainstream media, too, you know, the, the cultural popular sort of media that's out there is ever more explicit and sexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so kids are constantly, in, and it's 14,000 references to sexuality a year, adolescents in particular. That comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they're constantly bombarded, the onslaught of implicit and explicit messaging about sexuality. So when I see, you know, TikToks and social media that are, or folks who are using those vehicles or those platforms by which to get this information out to kids in a way that is really helpful and supportive and in the service of them having healthy, enriching relationships that are grounded in mutual respect and dignity, like all those things, I think it's great. Um, The thing is, we have to know how to discern what is going to be helpful and what's actually not, because there's plenty, um, you know, in their feeds and in social media um, that actually is the antithesis 
of that and doesn't serve them. So what we want to do as caretaking adults is help them understand how to be filters and not sponges and what mm-hmm. to actually follow and, and you know, take in and then what to let fall away mm-hmm. and ignore. You know, so as caretaking adults, I mean, one way to think about this is, well, what do we tell these kids about these things? But when I really think about it, I mean, what do you think we should be saying to ourselves about how to be filters, not sponges, about all of these you know, sexual messages, which are, in fact, landing on, on adults even more than kids? Absolutely. And it's really hard for adults to know because we didn't actually get the kind of sexuality education that has been deemed most helpful um, ourselves. Right. So whenever I work with adults, um, caretaking adults or, or you know, teachers, um, parents, caretaking adults in young people's lives, a lot of times I first have to re-educate adults before I can encourage them mm-hmm. to educate their children. And the, the beautiful thing about this is that adults can actually do this together with their kids and they can role model healthy vulnerability and to say like I didn't get this education but I really care about you and to be responsible as your parent because I love you and I care about you and know this is important information for us to have and for you to to have we're going to figure this out together because sometimes and all of us who have healthy sustained relationships know that the most difficult conversations are sometimes the most important ones to have right so Um, You know, when we talked, a lot of times adults will say to me, you know, you're talking about calculus and how I should talk to my kids. I haven't even had basic math when it comes to sexuality. Um, And so and and even when I was you know, um, promoting my book, I'd have parents come up to me and say, I had to read it twice. The first time I was so distracted by my own education and thinking about like my own relationships in the past and where I am now that I had to read it again before I could talk to my kid about it. Yeah. We're talking about sex ed in a post-row world with Shafia Zaloom, author of Sex Teens and Everything in Between. She's a health educator currently working at the Urban School in San Francisco. And we want to hear from you. What did you learn in sex ed? And did that serve you in your own life? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. Or the emails forum at kqd.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about sex ed in a post-row world with Shafia Zaloom, author of Sex Teens and Everything in Between, working right now at the Urban School in San Francisco. And I want to bring in Lisa from San Jose to join our conversation. Welcome, Lisa. 
Hi, thank you very much. Um, so I am a public school teacher in San Jose, and before switching grade levels, I taught fifth grade for 15 years in San Jose. Um, and uh, as a science teacher, part of our curriculum was the family life standards. So the standards themselves are um, written in a way that they can be interpreted rather loosely or um, rather expansively. And so what we found is in the first couple of years I was teaching it, our district didn't have a provided curriculum. So they actually had a meeting one day and said, okay, you guys are the science teachers for fifth grade. You guys need to develop your own curriculum. Here's the standards. So we literally all went back into that. Uh, at my site, it was, um, it was a joint effort between the two science teachers. And um, we covered what we thought we needed to for as far as gathering materials. But then we went into our own classrooms and taught it separately because we had different mm -hmm. students. And I know for a fact, because we would talk about it after each lesson at the end of the day, I know for a fact that the lessons that that teacher gave were very different than the lessons that I gave. And my overall point, although I do have some other comments, is that regardless of what the standards are and the, and the curriculum that's provided, the experience within each classroom for the kids is going to vary greatly based on mm -hmm. the teacher's um, own knowledge, but also their, their comfortableness, their, mm. their feeling of comfort with the material. So it was very different for a teacher who had, who th had had only girls versus myself who'd had girls and boys of my own, my own children that I'd raised and they were already beyond, they were already adults. And so the, she just wasn't comfortable yeah. with um, both Such genders a, and having yeah. even to address the, the boys in the class. So there's mm. a lot to be um, considered. But in addition to that, well, Lisa, let me. I, I want to let's uh let's pause on this too because I think it's an interesting, really interesting point to uh to dilate on. Uh, Shafia, can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's it's a. I think what Lisa is alluding to is kind of a, a real need to kind of teach the teachers. And sub point, it seems wild to me that so much of this should be put on teachers individually rather than you know systems. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, in all aspects of education, ideally, anyone who teaches any subject is receiving really quality professional development, um, that there is an effort made to be consistent, um, to have a scope and sequence, all kinds of, you know, this is education speak, but to really ensure that there is some consistency um, and quality that every student is being served by. And um, we don't have that yet. And, you know, in any other subject, too, you wouldn't, because a lot of times when it comes to sexuality education, it'll just be sort of by default given to the school nurse or the school counselor or the PE teacher or whoever, whoever else, like people who actually don't want to be put in that position, don't feel comfortable and aren't qualified to teach it. Um, and we wouldn't do that in other subjects, right, to actually ask the, you know, um, language arts teacher, unless there was some extraordinary circumstance, to teach AP chemistry. Um, but in these situations, because sexuality education or sexuality in our country has always been, or culturally, has been seen as separate and sort of put aside and not integral to the whole, mm -hmm. that we haven't approached it in the same ways that we know are good practices when it comes to how people learn and, and teaching kids across developmental stages and having consistency and setting up teachers for success. And because of that inconsistency, then you get some people who are comfortable and have more experience and other people who aren't. 
And this is a difficult topic because a lot of schools don't want to really dig into it because the people who have to, you know, support that effort aren't necessarily comfortable themselves or don't feel prepared to do that. You know, uh, thank you so much for that, Lisa and Tanisha. Just a really great on-the-ground point there. Uh, Shafia, zooming out quite a bit, I I wanted to ask you, you know, in light of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, I mean, we know that access to abortion care will go away in some parts of the country, already already has. Um, What's most concerning to you about that as a sex educator? Uh, You know, when that first happened and I received an email in June from a student who said, you know, this has happened and I'm reaching out. What does this mean for me? And I think that's a really important part because it's a part of the national dialogue. There's a lot um, that's sort of swirling around it, right? And young people are wondering, you know, what does, and there are a lot of feelings behind it. What are the adults doing? How are they dealing with this? How are they having conversation about this? Um, What does this mean for me? I think is a really developmentally appropriate and important question that young people are asking themselves. And so my concern is, Who's talking to kids about this? Now, I do know that because it's part of the national dialogue, a lot of parents are talking to kids about the politics of sexual and reproductive rights. What concerns me or what I'm hoping for is that, you know, yes, that's true. And we're still not talking enough about the, this greater, very important conversation about sexuality in general. Right. So so how is it only in a moment when something comes up in the media? I think it's a great inroad. I think it's a great inroad to say, here's what's happening around sexual reproductive rights. And it's made me realize that we need to have far more conversations about sexuality in general. Right. Or I need to learn more so that we can engage in that dialogue because it's going to be really important because what we know, this has a lot to do with empowerment. Young people feeling empowered to make informed decisions that will serve them and the information they need to do that. So, you know, depending on the age of your child and how much of this they're getting or understanding. And then I think, too, of young adults, right, who are still adolescents as well, some of them, um, and layer a pandemic on that and the arrested development of a lot of kids who are going to, for instance, colleges and universities in a state where, you know, different from their home state, where there may be different sexual reproductive laws around this, right? Like, what does that mean for them? So helping kids who may be feeling distressed and confused um, and a bit out of control, right? Like feelings of out of control and how that can be really disconcerting. I think as caring adults, we need to provide information. We need to help provide guidance in helping them to understand how this may or may not impact them. And then moving forward to say, and here are some things we can do, right, to feel more empowered in making a difference and understanding and knowing our bodies, like we may have more control over them. Let's bring in uh, another caller, Barbara in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. Um, I got no sexual education from my parents, uh, nor at schools. So I, 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 was, I had a very a kind of funny but pitiful experience. Uh, I was, we were out on a field trip. Uh, the parent, who was also a nurse, was driving. We're out in a rural area, and I look out the window of the car, and I say, oh, look, double-decker cows. <laughs> and I truly didn't know what was going on even then. Um, 
I also found uh, some pornographic uh, uh, publications on the side of the road when I was very young, and that's a strange way to learn about sex as well. Um, so, um, uh, oh, and the other thing that happened is um, I was at a high school where um, a very popular uh, male uh, student uh, impregnated a, a, a girl, his girlfriend, uh, I, I think in those days he probably went on to a fine career because he was a star. Um, but God knows what happened to her and how her whole life and career uh, trajectory was was certainly affected. Yeah. So that's my story. Yeah. Very ignorant. Oh, man. Thank you for uh, for sharing those experiences, Barbara. Um, the double-decker cow, certainly where I grew up, was uh, one of the main ways you got into that conversation with your parents. Um, I, you know, Shafia, I want to bring in Christopher Pepper, just because of the last comment that Barbara made. Christopher Pepper's a health educator in San Francisco Unified School District. Uh, welcome to the show, Christopher. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, uh, Barbara alluded to the differences in life path that resulted uh, in, you know, from one of her classmates getting pregnant. And it does seem like the burdens of this area can sometimes fall on anyone with a uterus, whereas uh, boys and people who can get people pregnant skate on having to learn sort of the, the both the ins and outs or experience the repercussions. This is something you've really been working on. Can you tell us what you've learned about what what everyone needs to understand about the different roles uh, in in this domain? Sure. Um, I, I think some of the comments that have been made so far really pointed out that we there's a great need for um, relationship and sexuality education in schools um, and that a lot of adults um, don't they need some help in um, having these conversations. So, you know, the fact that it's um, taught, if it's taught more in schools, that actually encourages conversations at home and gives um, families sometimes a, a reason to talk about it at home because sometimes it can be awkward to know when to figure it out or when to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Um, we in San Francisco Unified make an effort to have our classes from the time that we start teaching about puberty, which is an elementary school, um, to always be to be inclusive for everyone and to have everyone in the room so that um, things that can sometimes feel mysterious or awkward, things like menstruation or erection or body hair, get a little bit more normalized, um, that you have boys and girls and non-binary kids all in the same room together, learning that information, learning about what um, will probably be happening with their bodies and what might be happening with their classmates um, and what experiences they can have. And just to build some empathy around that. Um, and I think, you know, I'm thinking about lifetime outcomes. I want to have men who, you know, if they're married to a woman and, um, or someone who's menstruating and they say, Oh, you're going out to the grocery store. Can you pick up some pads? I need some, but that's no big deal that they, they don't blanch and get embarrassed. They just say, sure. I'm also getting some broccoli and, um, what else do you need? You know, um, Christopher just mentioned something, Shafia, that, I think really hit home for me as a parent of fairly young kids is, you know, when I hear you two say like, you know, age appropriate um, sex ed, I think a hard thing for parents is to know like, well, what is age appropriate? (laughs) How do you, how do you think about that given, you know, kids differing development and, you know, both cognitive and physical and emotional? 
Oh, absolutely. So when you look at sexuality education, and there's so much to be included, right, across the developmental stages, when we talk about sort of kindergarten through third or fourth grade, you know, we can focus on things like how do you express your feelings? How do you identify feelings? Um, helping kids to understand and read feelings as they are expressed on people's faces. Picking up on social cues. What does it mean to respect another person and to use age-appropriate kid language? Their space bubble, right? Things like that that are really building the foundation. You know, how do we appreciate other people and how they contribute to our lives? You know, that's building the foundation for empathy, understanding values, how we treat each other matters. Um, and then as you move on into the realm of adolescence, which starts at 11, um, and we're talking about fourth, fifth grade, um, and puberty education, how do we normalize what's happening to bodies? Kids need to, and we know that this actually protects them, um, is and, and this starts from the beginning, actually, when they can talk. What are the accurate names, right, mm. for body parts? We call a neck a neck. Like, you know, when it comes to right. a vulva, like that's vulva what we should call it. Vagina. Right. Yeah. Yes, because most adults actually um, are mistaken and think that, you know, they refer to everything as a vagina, not a vulva, which is actually quite often what they are referring to. So it's really important that we normalize. We want to be askable parents and askable adults, right? Like mm. that we normalize this conversation in this language so kids are empowered to then have boundaries around, stand up for, enjoy and embrace these and have bodily autonomy. Mm. Um, and that in puberty education, we understand that there's a whole biological and medical side to these sort of things as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, and just always being inclusive and affirmative of of all peoples and the reality of all people and how the diverse range of ways by which people express um, their sexuality so that kids can see themselves and it's affirming of how they see the greater world. Um, and then in high school, you know, that's where you really want to engage in scaffolding over time. You know, how do we actually relationship scenarios, um, you know, a, a deeper dive into um, sex information, safe sexuality practices, but also in terms of relationships, right, and how we treat each other matters. Mm -hmm. Communication skills, sexual communication skills, building and cultivating the capacity to actually practice, right, con things like consent, to put those things into um, their practice so that they understand how it works in a dynamic. Um, and then even beyond that, I mean, there's also preparation for if you're going straight to work, um, as you move into adulthood, you might end up on a college or university campus. You know, what do you need to know culturally about what's going on in those places and how sexuality shows up, what the implicit and explicit messaging is, what you want to hold on to for yourself, and what you want to let go of? Um, you know, there's a lot there. So, and, and, and pleasure and joy. Um, and that relationships can actually be really enriching and fulfilling in people's lives. And what we know through decades of research is actually it's not necessarily someone's GPA or where they go to school or they, their SAT score that will determine the quality of their life. The quality of their relationships are actually what will determine the quality of their life. So this is an investment that's really incredibly important. I mean, I just feel like you're delivering us this whole language of ways <laughs> the ways that we can think about uh, sex things, ways we can talk about our, our children amongst each other. I love this phrase, askable adults, like you want to be askable. It seems like 
such a crucial part of like how I've thought about parenting, but I've never actually had the the words for it. And I just also wanted to highlight even just the whole idea that you might need a specific set of communication skills, sexual communication skills. That's just um, thank you so much. Yeah, um, we are talking about sex ed in a post-rural world with Shafia Zaloum, author of Sex Teens and Everything in Between, health educator working at the Urban School, and Christopher Pepper, health educator working in San Francisco Unified. Uh, if you're a parent, we'd love to hear from you. What did you have to learn before you could talk to your kids about sex and reproduction? <laughs> that's what I. That's one of the big lessons I feel like is, is arising for this for me. Um, phone lines are full, but you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And you can also email your questions to forum at kqed.org. wanted to share a good experience that Kirsten had. She wrote in to say, I grew up in Berkeley and went to Berkeley High in the mid-80s. I received my first sex ed course in sixth grade, and it was all biology, male and female sex organs. Then I had a more detailed biological course in eighth grade. And finally, in 10th grade, I was in a social living class in which the teacher and student sat in a circle and talked about social, cultural, and emotional sex education and birth control. This was pre-age, so the focus was birth control. When I decided to have sex, I told my parents I was going to get on birth control. I felt well-informed and emotionally ready. I feel very lucky to have had that experience. Um, Christopher Pepper, just real quick before we have to go to the break, how many people do you think had that kind of experience in the mid-'80s? Oh, I think um, we, that people's experience with sex education when you talk to adults, you get a lot more scary stories um, than stories of how great their sex ed was. I think that's quite unusual, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that experience. As, we, as people were discussing earlier, teacher training and the idea of um, really taking time to focus on the teachers who are going to be teaching these topics with students, helping them get comfortable with the language they want to use, with um, fielding questions, because students will raise their hands and ask, unexpected questions um, and helping know how to navigate that um, to how to communicate with parents and family members. Um, That is a really important aspect of doing sex ed in school well um, and recognizing that many of the adults that we're working with didn't get that kind of education themselves. And so they they kind of need to learn a whole different level. Uh, One last comment before we go to the break here tweets uh, to the age-appropriate question. Sexuality classes need to start earlier, middle school and ninth grade. Most schools don't start these talks until sophomore or junior year. That is too late. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about sex ed at this particularly fraught post-row moment with Shafia Zaloum, author of Sex Teens and Everything in Between, health educator at the Urban School, and Christopher Pepper, health educator in San Francisco Unified. Let's go back to the phones. Julie in Santa Rosa, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I had an experience when I was a um, preteen, a 12-year-old, where my parents sent me to a stay-away church camp um, because all my other friends were going, and it was affordable. And, um, you know, I think a lot of kids go to those kind of things because mm-hmm. it's kind of free daycare in the summer. Um, but all the girls were put into the auditorium, and we were shown a really disturbing movie about um, abortion. And um, it was probably one of the like most dramatic things that happened to me as um, sex ed goes in um, mm-hmm. my body. And I never talked to my parents about it because I was so upset. Um, so I just think parents need to be really vigilant as to like mm-hmm. where um, their kids are getting their information and you know, even the most well-intended things can really backfire when you don't ask the right questions about what your kids are going to be participating in. So oh, I just man. wanted to highlight that for Yeah, Julie. <laughs> yeah, such a such a good point. I mean, Shafia, let's come to you on this. I mean, what do parents do about, you know, straight-up misinformation or bad sex ed that's being delivered to their children? And how do they, aside from being askable, so that maybe Julie would have felt comfortable going to her parents, especially because she was traumatized as opposed to not, uh, wanting to go to them for that reason. What what can parents do? Well, first, I think it's important to recognize that, and I don't know any other sexuality educator who doesn't believe this, that like parents or professional sexuality educators, parents are the primary sexuality educator in a child's life. And I think that's a really important role that we embrace wholeheartedly. They're not the only one. They can't be the only one, but they are the primary one. And that it's actually, this is this just reinforces, just like the caller is saying, you know, how important it is to be working towards earning that status as the askable parent. Um, you know, I typically say teenagers need uh, an environment free of judgment, shame, and ultimatums to share with open honesty. I think that's true of all of us. And a lot of parents, when I do my parenting workshops, um, and and I have the opportunity as a consultant, I go to different states and different schools and districts, and I, and I talk to a lot of different folks. The questions are typically always the same. And a lot of times, you know, parents will come to me and say, how do I start? How do I do this? And the one thing that I think they find to be hopeful and a relief is that when I talk about this, it's rarely about the mechanics of sexuality, which is what I think makes people more or sexual exploration and activity, which makes people more nervous. Um, and that you can talk to your kid. This is about how we treat each other. This is about relationships. And it can be as simple as, you know, you're watching TV together and there's a moment um, in the film and you say, huh, do you think they both got to walk away with their dignity? Hmm. And that can really then, and, and it's, this is the time to talk less and listen more and allow kids to be the expert in their own experience and to say, you know, well, this is what I thought. And to ask questions that don't lead with why, because if you say why, if you lead with why, you've already made a judgment and kids' radar is really sensitive to that. Instead to say, oh, well, what made you think that? Well, how do you think they felt? Um, do you see, you know, or if you're in the car and you're listening to music together and you could say, huh, do you think this is about authentic connection or infatuation? Hmm. Or if you're listening to this 
you know, interview or you come across something on, on NPR to say, I heard this about young people. Do you think that's true? Is that what you've seen in your experience? Kids love to be the expert, right? So put them <laughs> in that place. And then become genuinely curious and ask those questions and engage in dialogue. Um, and how we model that dialogue is going to and participate in it. One is going to set expectations for what your kids think is going to be normal in relationships. And two, build their skills through practice and thinking about these things, being self-reflective, identifying stuff, putting language to it. All these things that are actually sex education, relationship education, which are really important. And it can start with that. Um, and I would say that you, know, you can give your book for a lot of sort of the more clinical kind of informational pieces. But how that comes together within a context of family values, cultural values, those sorts of things is really left up to the parents. So parents have this incredibly important job. And I encourage them and invite them to think of it in a somewhat different way that actually makes parents feel like, you know what, I can do this. Mm. And I yeah. think... Back to your earlier question, um, Alexis, that this is a place, these kind of deeper conversations about relationships and sexuality um, and really talking through scenarios and what would you do in this kind of situation, that is a place where sometimes people do a lot more talking to girls um, than, than to boys. And so I really encourage people with cisgender boys to dig into these conversations and um, Boys are, are open to these kind of conversations and will engage with them, but often nobody asks them to. Um, mm. So I really encourage people to recognize that all of our kids need these conversations, not just um, not just girls. Yeah, let me let me read you a comment that I want. And I'm we're going to bounce off a little bit. Um, and tweets. Ideally, parents should be the ones explaining things to children, and though their opinions may vary, will impart nothing contrary to fact. The worst omission of my school's sex education course, besides modern notions of consent, was emphasis on the sheer power of sexual attraction and the pleasure and sometimes transcendent nature of sex. Teens ought to know just how easily sex can, quote, screw up your life. And the thing I wanted to ask you about, Shafia, is, you know, the, the end of that tweet, the end of that comment, um, suggests there's a value in kids being like at least a little bit scared about the, what can result from, from sex. How do you think about that type of messaging in terms of its effectiveness for kids? You know, fear-based sex education or any sort of sexuality education that stigmatizes sexuality, I don't think will serve young people in, you know, what we hope they aspire to and what they practice in their relationships. However, I do agree that it's important for us to understand how behavior leads to consequences. And, you know, as individuals, different people based on context and social identities and, you know, resources and access to resources. And if you have supportive parents or, or caretaking adults in your life is going to make a difference in how someone experiences, right, those things. And so, you know, this is where I actually think what Christopher alluded to, the scenario work, is a really powerful way to point that out to young people mm. um, and to explore what could happen and what the potential consequences are. Yeah. And there's certainly plenty of that happening 
all the time. I mean, I use case studies, a variety of case studies in my class in this in many ways is is the backbone of my work is okay so we have all this information and here are the real life situations right because kids will say yeah i got all the information i understand the definition of consent but what does this mean like what does that mean on saturday night what does that mean when i'm in the hallway and someone's propositioning me and i'm not into it like what does that mean for me and i think that for some kids it can mean exactly what um you know is it someone is saying in terms of they should know the power that it can have a negative impact. So as a sex positive sex educator, you know, I believe that sex shouldn't be stigmatized. So that's one. And two, it's what you do with it that matters. So let's explore with kids what different people do with it and what the consequences and outcomes of those things are. And how can we then make decisions, um, informed decisions, and explore the different paths people can take in situations to optimize it working in our favor, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately that's important. And we have to be careful when we do that because most kids actually know what should be done. But that's not always what's happening. So what we got to be interested in is, well, what's realistic and what's actually happening and what gets in the way of what we're aspiring to? And that when we do that, because we tend to actually talk about, you know, what to avoid, what to fear, and we don't give as much airtime, and airtime in many ways reflects what we value, right, to things like love, companionship, right, fulfilling um, relationships that really contribute to our well-being in enriching ways. Um, you know, that's one thing in particular. There's there's research and studies that tell us our kids are grossly underprepared for loving, caring relationships because we don't talk to them enough about that. As modern parents, we sort of check the boxes on certain topics, but we aren't talking to kids enough about love. And what's the emotional embodied connected experience of a caring, loving relationship? I don't know how many people out there remember the Lauren Hill album, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, but there's these little interludes on that album in which you know, a, a sex educator or, or a relationship educator is kind of talking to a, a group of kids about what love means. And I remember hearing that, you know, late in high school and thinking to myself, like, I've never had anyone ask me any of these questions. And uh, and I remember being kind of even at, you know, much older than the kids who were having those conversations being um, kind, kind of fascinated by them. Um, let's bring in uh, Mary in Belmont. Welcome, Mary. Um, hi. Thank you so much for letting me chime in here. Um I just wanted to share an example of, you know, growing up in the Midwest in the mid-90s, uh, very much in the core of abstinence-only education um, and what that was like, um, you know, within purity culture and all of that, mm. uh, you know, being dragged to the auditorium to watch slideshows on every terrible STD that could ever exist and just kind of like, okay, this is what happens if you have sex, don't have sex you know, desperately trying to terrify us out of the whole enterprise. And the one silver lining was the fact that I happened to be in a college town with a Planned Parenthood and the access to, you know, education that we had to kind of find on our own and within our mm -hmm. friend group, um, kind of creating a little community around that and kind of like, okay, well, where would you guys go if you wanted to learn this or that? And kind of the little you know, support system we created for ourselves that we kind of had to if we wanted to have any real information on the topic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
that's a really good point, Mary. I, you know, I wanted to uh, take this to you, um, Chris Pepper. I mean, you know, when you think about old o- older people, you know, and not having gotten this kind of education, and we're talking about you know taking charge of your health, and we know that you know people are going to have difficulty accessing abortion, you know, in some places. Like, how do you how do you think about where adults should go for sex ed? info, right? Because you're not like, you're an adult, let's say you're already married and you, but you're still not quite understanding why you can't get pregnant or you got pregnant in an unplanned way. You don't want to go to like a teen book and start reading it. So where should adults go who feel like they need this kind of, you know, education? Well, I think there's places for adults who are working with young people. So, um, you know, we built a big website called CaliforniaHealthEducation.org. And that's aimed at adults who are in schools, administrators, teachers. Um, For adults who are trying to get information for themselves, um, we were talking earlier about being an askable askable parent. Amaze.org has a great program for parents um, that's called that specifically, how to to become a more askable parent. Hmm. Um, So that's a great resource. Um, And Planned Parenthood has you know, excellent resources about, um, for people about how their bodies work. Um, there's great sexuality education available for adults, um, out in the world. So I would encourage people to, to look for, um, those resources for themselves. Um, but it is a good idea to get that information really clear before, um, or to treat this as, Oh, I need to learn about this too. If I'm going to be working with young people, um, and I think this is a place Shafia was talking about the um, sort of scenario work and really thinking things through. And this is a place where we've seen health education really evolve, where we now do what's called skills-based health education. And we're putting much less emphasis on facts and biology. that Those are important, but we really want to give time to practice the, the skills that people need in their in their regular lives. And... I guess one of the places that I'm I'm really excited um, to see change is that we now are seeing research that says this really works. So um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that providing comprehensive sexuality education in schools and practicing refusal skills and practicing communication skills actually reduces sexual assault um, pretty dramatically. So it's something that um, when people see those results, I hope they become kind of advocates and mm-hmm. say, oh, this is something we really should be doing yeah. in schools. Let's squeeze in one last call. Danielle in Sacramento, welcome. Hi there. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I had a, I, I'm a child of the early 90s. I think my high school sex ed was fairly ludicrous, but I had the incredible fortune of growing up um, the, the best friend of the son of Dr. Felicia Stewart. Uh, I don't know if folks may remember her. The late doctor passed away in 2006. She wrote the book, Understanding Your Body. Mm -hmm. Um, She gave me this book when I was 17 years old, and she flagged a number of sections and then sat me down um, and talked to me about so many portions of the book, which have deeply influenced and, and frankly, saved my life um, and influenced me as the mother of a teenage daughter. She was also um, a, a, an incredible proponent for abortion rights back in the 70s. 
um, and she shared with me the history of the work that she had done and it's information and lessons that I've also been able to share with other friends of mine as I was growing up and in college. Um, so when you talk about this askable adult model, it's it's just so critical. I, I, I wanted to sing her praises and in her honor. She, she passed away in 2006. She was at UC San Francisco, I believe, and she became a a uh, consultant for uh, Hillary Clinton as well. She was an incredible woman, and um, we should all aspire to do the amazing work that you all are speaking of. So thank you so much for that. And that was Felicia Stewart, you said, right, for anyone who was listening? Correct. And her late husband as well, Gary Stewart, was a co-author of Understanding Your Body. He was a hugely important figure at Planned Parenthood, I believe, of Mm -hmm. Northern California. But he spoke all around the world about um, reproductive health, And, um, yeah, they were two very askable adults. I was, I was super, super fortunate to have them in my young life. Yeah, thank you so much, Danielle. And, you know, just because this topic is fascinating to me and because we're, we're getting to the end of there, Shafia, give us, are, do you have tips on being an askable adult just before, as we head out here? Oh, absolutely. And I just want to recognize, too, that not everyone may feel like, or not all kids feel like they can have these conversations with their parents. And so if there is another adult in the child's life who, you know, you can have a conversation with to be clear about, you know, what's okay to talk to kids with and what isn't and in what way, um, to have other people, an aunt, an older sister, a cousin, um, a family friend, someone who can, you know, be the askable adult for sure. And sometimes it's really great to have multiple askable adults in your family or in your inner circle um, so that young people can find this information and engage in dialogue um, in a way that's really going to support them. So tips would be, you know, to think not one big talk, but moments. You're scaffolding this over time. Um, And that we know, you know, like in the peanuts, the want, 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 like that (laughs) happens. You see it when kids' eyes glaze over and And you only have so much time. Um, And so, you know, like I was saying before, it's the value of these small victories, collecting moments um, where you drop a question here. You you notice something there, right, which is a non-judgmental way to say, say, oh, I notice, um, to draw their attention to something, to engage curious, you know, with genuine curiosity. Again, free of judgment and shame. Yeah. Um, and to also ask kids what they think and what they need. Um, you know, that's a really important step is that you actually care about what they think and need within this context and you allow for their voice Perfect. and support it. That's a great ending. We've been talking about sex ed in a post row world with Shafia Zaloum, author of Sex Teens and Everything in Between, health educator at the Urban School, and Christopher Pepper, health educator at San Francisco USD. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.